In this episode of the podcast, you will learn about the lessons the past climate teach us about the future and why they are necessary for businesses, clean energy investment trends, India's targets and a lot more. This episode is extremely content rich. Make sure you listen to it till the end. Now, without any further ado, let's get started. Welcome to the very first episode of Sustainability Under Microscope. So glad to have you, Bharat. Thank you so much, Antika. It's my pleasure. So, Bharat, I know that uh, you know you've been uh, involved in this sector of sustainability from the very starting right, uh, starting of your career. So, you know, what has motivated you to be a part of this sustainability sector? Is it because of your childhood, or you know, any particular event uh, that made you get started in the sector? what is it okay um so i think um my interest uh, actually began from science and engineering so uh, it goes back to childhood uh, so i was uh, actually born brought up in bangalore uh, in the 90s so bangalore of the 90s was uh, a very different city uh, compared to the bangalore that we see today uh, you know so when we got our first television set i remember in the mid 90s uh, you know i remember being hooked on to uh, the nat geo and discovery uh documentaries uh you know so i was uh, really a fan of uh, you know the shows like mega cities and you know some of those uh, wildlife uh, documentaries so that's where really uh, my interest in science uh, germinated and uh, i think after that uh, you know uh, i spent my high school uh, in chennai uh, where i uh, picked up um, a lot of uh, interest in physics and mathematics um and uh, i think um, i was fortunate enough to uh, end up in iit kharagpur uh, where uh, i had uh, a very conducive environment to explore uh, a whole variety of things uh, so i think really uh, my interest in sustainability started towards uh, my fourth year at uh, iit kharagpur um, so i had an opportunity to intern in delhi uh, with a consulting firm so that was in the summer of my fourth year and uh, that internship was actually about uh, building energy efficiency so i really got to understand uh you know how uh modeling techniques can be used uh, to simulate energy performance in buildings and i think that was really the starting point uh, of my journey and uh, subsequently uh you know i decided that uh, you know i did not want to sit for placements uh in campus which was quite a shocking thing uh you know for my parents for uh, you know those around me uh so but i decided that you know uh, this is a sector that i want to explore so uh, i did another internship uh in the winter of uh, my final year uh also in delhi and this was actually uh in 2013 so in 2013 if you remember there was this whole uh, india against corruption movement uh and there was a lot of uh, you know new uh, policy discourse that was happening in delhi uh so mm-hmm. i actually got a chance to uh, you know attend some of these uh, conferences and actually uh, you know pick up uh, you know various uh, aspects of uh, the new public policy discourse that was emerging and uh, you know energy and environment was also very much a part of this uh, discourse so uh, this is what really you know kind of uh, set the stage and uh, after that uh, i decided that you know this is uh, something that i want to pursue in depth uh, so i was lucky to get a pre placement offer uh, in the energy and resources institute uh, where i began working right after my graduation and uh, yeah in terry again uh, you know terry is a think tank uh, based in delhi uh, it's known for its um, activities in the energy and environment space 
and it's a pretty big organization so uh, in the four and a half years that i spent in terry i actually got to learn uh, quite a few things uh, you know across uh, clean energy and environment you know right from sort of the modeling aspects uh, you know the uh, how modeling can be used for decision making uh, you know at the public policy level whether it's at the municipal level or at the state level uh, you know or at the national level or in fact even at the international negotiations uh, you know because uh, you have these cop negotiations which happen every year uh, in different cities so i actually got a front row seat uh, in all of these uh, events and actually uh, picked up um, a lot uh, from uh, my experiences over here okay wow that is great yeah thank you thank you antika yeah so i mean i do resonate with you on this part basically you know when you're saying uh, you you watched discovery channels and you know all those episodes or shows that uh comes over there that's really insightful and i believe uh you know that kind of uh rings that bell in your mind at a very young age where you would start questioning thing okay why is this happening or what is this actually going on so yeah i totally resonate with you on that right yes so you've also um done your you know graduation basically it was a integrated course i believe in uh geology right so uh you know as a geology student and you've also been a, a public policy student in the past like you mentioned before so you know what do you think uh, the uh, understanding the past climate is important uh, basically why is it important to understand the past climate and especially for the businesses and policy makers and key decision makers right right so uh, ayantika uh, you must have heard of uh, you know this famous uh, keeling curve right uh so yes. if you put this in uh you know a geological context right uh, so what's been happening is that uh you know in the last 800000 years uh in the last 800000 years uh the concentration of uh, co2 in the atmosphere has largely been around the 250 ppm mark uh and uh, it's only in the last 50 years uh you know because of an exponential growth in industry and uh, you know uh human activity uh that uh, the concentration of co2 in the atmosphere has shot up uh, to more than 400 ppm right so if you put this uh, so let us assume that this 800000 years were to be condensed in a single day right uh this increase from 250 to 400 uh, has essentially happened uh, you know within a fraction of a second right so that's that's uh, you know how uh, you know serious the problem is right and um, basically scientists uh, project that uh, if the current rate of emissions uh, you know carry forward uh, we will exhaust our carbon budget within 10 years uh, if we have to maintain uh, you know a temperature rise if we have to limit the temperature rise to within 1.5 celsius so uh, you know the paris agreement uh, has basically uh, you know provided a framework with which uh, you know different countries can come together and agree on uh, limiting their emissions growth right and uh, countries have by and large agreed that they will strive towards uh, you know keeping the temperature rise to within 1.5 celsius by the end of the century compared to pre industrial levels so which is about 1850 but if if we are on track to exhausting our carbon budget uh, to limit the temperature rise to 1.5 celsius within the next 10 years we are definitely uh, you know going to see a much higher uh, rise in temperature uh mm. beyond 2030 right and that's going to cause uh you know irreversible damage to the planetary system right you're going to see more extreme events you're going to see more 
uh, flash floods, uh, heat waves, droughts, cyclones, all of these things, right? So right. Uh, this is one of the most uh, serious challenges, uh, you know, not just uh, for this decade, but in fact, I believe, uh, you know, for the entire century, right? So that is why uh, understanding historical climate is important. Uh, it is important to, uh, you know, put uh, our current context uh, in the historical perspective so that uh, the urgency for climate action uh, is, uh, you know, uh, there, uh, you know, in, in uh, as much uh, in as many people as possible. And, uh, you know, uh, all of this actually culminates into appropriate uh, public policy uh, decisions, appropriate business action uh, and appropriate uh, community engagement uh, to deal with this problem. Hmm. Okay, um, Bharat, can you like also for the young listeners of our podcast, can you define a carbon budget in a very you know easy way? Okay. So um, what uh, essentially happens uh, when global uh, when we talk about global warming, right? Uh, is that uh, you know we have many different sources of greenhouse gas, uh, you know uh, greenhouse gases, right? So uh, whether it's CO two or CH four or uh, nitrous oxides, uh, N two O in particular, you also have the HFCs and the HCFCs. All of these basically have different uh, what's called radiative forcing, right? So right. Uh, all of these gases uh, differentially heat up the atmosphere. Right. And there is a correlation between the quantity of greenhouse gas in the atmosphere and the temperature rise uh, that we witness. Right. So whether it's air temperature uh, or the sea surface or the land surface temperature. So what the carbon budget is really about is, uh, you know, how much of uh, greenhouse gases, uh, CO2, as well as the other greenhouse gases, can you emit into the atmosphere so that um, the global warming is uh, within uh, reasonable levels. So when we say reasonable, this means that uh, no major tipping points are crossed uh, when it comes to the stability of the planetary system, right? So um, again, translating this into actual numbers, so scientists have done a um, lot of calculations and they have actually estimated that uh, we have about 440 billion tons of CO2 that are available to us uh, if we have to keep the temperature rise to within 1.5 Celsius, right? So this is the correlation between the quantum of greenhouse gases that are emitted into the atmosphere and the temperature rise that would result because of these greenhouse gases entering the atmosphere. So mm-hmm. this carbon budget is, uh, you know, would have to be divided between different countries. Uh, and there is the whole process of, uh, you know, uh, climate negotiations is basically about, uh, you know, each country jostling for this carbon budget or this carbon space, right? right. So, uh, you know, developing countries would want uh, most of the carbon budget so that, uh, and because, I mean, rightly so as well, right? Because, uh, you know, uh, developing countries are not at fault uh, historically, if you see uh, mm. from 1850 uh, till present, uh, you know, it's mostly been the developed countries, uh, you know, who have uh, emitted uh, most of the greenhouse gases. And uh, developing countries right now have uh, imperatives to uh, reduce their poverty, uh, you know, to provide, uh, you know, jobs uh, to its uh, citizens. Uh, and uh, therefore, uh, you know, developing countries typically look at the easiest way out, right? So uh, they tend to take as much action as they can afford or, you know, as uh, their circumstances would allow. Um, but uh, yeah, this is what, uh, you know, the Paris Agreement is all about, right? So, uh, you know, countries come together to pledge their, uh, you know, emission reduction uh, plans, uh, also called as NDCs, nat- uh, nationally determined contributions. 
Um, so this is, uh, you know, in a sense, uh, how ambitious each country wants to be, uh, you know, when it comes to reducing their overall GHG emissions. You know, some countries, uh, you know, have uh, renewable energy targets. Some countries have afforestation targets. Some countries have uh, targets in terms of the GHG intensity of the economy, which is per dollar of GDP added. Uh, you know, we would limit the GHG emissions to, uh, you know, certain percentage or whatever the case may be. So different countries have different uh, ways of, uh, you know, expressing uh, their commitments. And the idea is that if you add all of this up, if you add the NDC contributions uh, of all of the countries, uh, we are uh, well on our way to a temperature rise of 2.7 to 3.6 Celsius uh, by 2100 compared to the pre-industrial mm-hmm. level. Right? So that is... Uh, going to be uh, quite uh, disastrous for the planet, right? Because uh, that would mean that uh, many of the tipping points are crossed and you would have a much more, uh, you know, uh, much much higher number and intensity of extreme weather events. And that's going to cause uh, disruption to the economy as a whole, right? So this is what uh, essentially the idea and the politics behind carbon budget is. Right. Also, Bharat, to our previous question, you were referring that, you know, your interest actually came up when in the fourth year you were working on energy efficiency and modeling, right? Yes. yes. Um, so in 2020, when the pandemic hit and India's economy yeah. was dented, India's yeah. uh, emission fell by 9.7% which was a little more than the world's average of 9.6%. Now, we know that last year was like a pause button because of the halt in economic activities, right? Yeah, yeah. Now, in regards to the economic activities, the energy sector in India is the largest contributor for carbon dioxide emissions, right? Mm -hmm. And we know that uh, it is because 74 to 75% of India's energy mix is still dominated by fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. And according to Climate Transparency Report 2020, India spent about $13.4 billion on fossil fuel subsidies in 2019. Plus, it has no explicit carbon price. And we know uh, investments in green energy and infrastructure needs to outweigh fossil fuel investments by 2025, right, to basically meet the targets. So uh, what is being done to, you know, reduce the dependency on fossil fuels for India's energy mix. Um, Basically, what are the uh, clean energy investment trends? What is India's target and how close are we to reach the target? Okay, so uh, let me start with COVID, right? So, yes, yes, you are right that, uh, you know, COVID did indeed halt a significant part of uh, India's economy and in fact, uh, many other countries' economy as well. But uh, one of the important things to note here is that this was a temporary pause, right? It wasn't a structural transformation. Uh, you know, it was, uh, you know, anyway, uh, you know, going to be short-lived because, uh, you know, once people get vaccinated and once the economy, uh, you know, starts functioning again, uh, the emissions are also going to continue to rise, right? So it wasn't any, uh, you know, major structural transformation uh, that occurred uh, during the lockdown, right? So, uh, you know, yes, uh, you know, we got a temporary relief, uh, like I live in Delhi, so, you know, air pollution in Delhi significantly mm-hmm. improved in that period. So all of these are definitely plus points, right? But uh, if we want to achieve like meaningful uh, decarbonization, uh, it has to be done, uh, you know, through structural uh, reforms, right? So, uh, and when we talk about structural reforms, there are quite a few things that India has already done. 
um so i can just uh, name a few of them right so for example yes. uh, you know uh, our ndc uh, itself states uh, so the three main uh, quantifiable targets in our ndc commitments uh, to the paris agreement so the first one is Uh, the reduction in the ghg intensity so we have committed that we would reduce the ghg intensity of the economy by 33 to 35% uh, in the year 2030 compared to 2005 levels right so this would be a combination of both energy efficiency and renewable energy for the most part uh, by which every additional value add uh, in the gdp uh, you know uh, consumes or emits uh less uh co2 and other greenhouse gases so this is one of the quantifiable uh, targets that we have laid out the second uh you know sort of quantifiable target that we have laid out is the renewable energy capacity addition right yeah. so we have committed to uh increase the share of uh, renewable uh you know uh, energy by uh, in terms of capacity by 40% in the same time period right and in fact domestically we have also laid out uh, a target of uh, you know uh, now 450 gigawatts of uh, renewable energy by 2030 and we have already achieved um, uh, you know quite a bit of that so we have achieved in fact 100 gigawatts of installed capacity now uh, if you see the investment trends uh, in clean energy right so this uh, how did this happen right how did the 100 gigawatt of uh, renewable energy get installed in india mm. uh, you know it doesn't happen magically right it happens through um you know a lot of uh, you know uh, structural reforms right a lot of new policy uh, implementation right so one of the important things uh, you know that drove that drove this is uh, you know uh, setting an appropriate investment climate uh, for investors uh, to invest in grid connected solar and wind so uh, you know for instance uh, this would involve uh, so so let me let me just uh, take a step back and you know look at um for any uh, you know uh, commercialization of uh, new technology uh, it goes through several stages right so when a technology is uh, still not mature uh, you know it's still in the proof of concept stage and you see that uh, you know it has potential uh, you know you typically need uh, government support right you need like capital subsidy you need uh, government uh, research grants uh and things like that to develop the technology right to experiment uh to do various uh, you know uh, uh you know lab testing uh, etc to get uh, to achieve proof of concept right after that uh, you know you still need uh, you know certain amount of subsidies uh to ensure that uh, these new technologies can compete with the existing ones in the market and once uh, a certain you know critical uh you know uh, penetration has been achieved in the market then you can sort of let go of the subsidies and uh, you know uh, free market forces can come into the picture and uh, you know then you would have uh, uh, you know uh, competition right so uh, in the case of solar and wind right uh, even say uh, 10 or 15 years back uh, the technology was not mature so as a result uh, the banks were not able to uh, provide attractive terms of finance uh, to uh solar and wind developers right as uh, the technology became more mature uh banks became more and more comfortable to lend uh to these developers in uh, sort of at attractive terms right so uh, one of the things that uh, i was uh, involved in uh during my stint in iea was uh, to look at the trend of uh, the terms of finance for uh, grid connected solar and wind uh you know especially in terms of interest rates and uh, capital structure and things like that and what we found was that uh, the terms of finance became more and more favorable with time which is what in fact led to uh you know such a high capacity addition uh, in the last say 5 uh, or 10 years right mm. um so uh this is one of the uh, you know significant uh, milestones uh, you could say uh, for india in its uh, clean energy transition which is 
you know the significant uh, capacity enhancement uh, of grid connected solar and wind right but these are not without challenges so one of the big issues in india right now is uh the distribution uh, sector right so uh, we all know that uh, discoms are uh, suffering from uh, poor financial health right. uh, you know there's a regulatory uh, you know uh, issue as well in terms of the pricing because you know most uh, most uh, of the electricity that gets consumed in the agricultural sector have to be subsidized right and uh, therefore uh, the people who can pay more essentially are the households and the industries and they have to cross subsidize uh, the agricultural sector right so this has led to uh, you know uh, a poor uh, financial health uh, in most discoms right and because of this uh, what happens is that the discoms are finding it difficult to uh, pay uh, renewable energy developers especially the tariffs are uh, higher than uh, coal based power right so this was a problem uh, that we have been facing pretty much uh, you know since um, say the beginning of uh, last decade right, right. so when uh, all of these uh, targets came up uh, the national solar mission and all of these things came up right so uh, this is one of the challenges uh, that in fact still exists and uh, you know we need to address uh, many uh, successive governments have come up with various schemes um you know to uh, improve or overhaul the uh, electricity distribution sector but uh, they've achieved only partial success right so this is on the renewable energy or the electricity side of things mm-hmm. um there's also the electric mobility story uh, you know which is picking up in a very big way in india yes. uh, especially in the last 3 uh, or 4 years uh, you know the government has come up with this fame scheme uh, there are many startups uh, you know who are providing uh, electric mobility services uh you know there are incentives for battery manufacturing that are coming up in india um so this is going to uh, in a sense uh decarbonize the transportation sector right because most of the transportation fleet um if you see this uh, if you see the fuel sources they're mostly like gasoline or diesel yes. uh you know cng is there as well but all of these are still fossil fuels mm-hmm. i mean natural gas emits lesser uh, than uh, gasoline or diesel but uh, they're all fossil fuels at the end of the day right mm. so they have a higher carbon footprint compared to uh, electric mobility so the long term plan for india is also to move towards electric mobility to move towards hydrogen based mobility and uh, you know we might need to then rely on intermediary or like uh, transition fuels uh, such as natural gas uh, for us to be able to get there uh, smoothly right so uh, i think these are uh, you know two uh, major uh, actions or milestones for india as far as uh, its decarbonization uh, strategy is concerned uh, apart from this of course uh, you know uh, it's also important uh, to uh, you know have afforestation targets um, you know because uh, forests are also carbon sinks uh, it's important to have uh, you know land use policies you know that minimize energy consumption that minimize uh, ghg emissions so all of these things are also happening uh in in various uh, like if you look at it from public policy point of view like uh, in various ministries and of course uh, you know uh, once you have uh, an enabling ecosystem you would al- also automatically have startups uh, coming into the picture and like producing various products or uh, you know providing various services that enable right. uh, this slow yeah. transition pathways yeah right um so also bharat what i feel is that with global yeah. pressures becoming stronger and uh, you know people especially yeah. the youth becoming more conscious and you know questioning the business as usual um how are the fossil fuel yeah. industries especially the coal oil and gas uh, you know strategizing and preparing for the mitigation and adaptation of the changing climate and becoming sustainable can they even become sustainable so 
Ayantika, I would answer this um, in sort of two parts. Um, so sure. one is that, uh, you know, uh, globally, you know, because of, uh, you know, the, uh, I guess, the imperative to disclose uh, their uh, climate change impacts, uh, we are seeing uh, that most of the fossil fuel companies are transitioning towards energy companies, right? So uh, most fossil fuel companies in the world, uh, you know, are pretty uh, active in the renewable energy space, in the electric mobility space, in the mm-hmm. clean tech space uh, in general. And uh, this is a trend that will continue, uh, I see, in the coming years because uh, it is uh, it makes business sense, right? Uh, you know, the case for uh, solar energy in India, you know, the case for electric mobility, all of these, uh, you know, clean technologies that were thought to be uh, unviable, uh, you know, even five or 10 years back, uh, they're starting to make business sense now because of uh, economy of scale, mm-hmm. right? So uh, this is why, uh, you know, many of the uh, fossil fuel companies uh, are transitioning towards uh, energy companies, right? So that is, uh, you know, one part of the story. Uh, the other part of the story is, uh, you know, closer home in India. Uh, there is, uh, I mean, one must also understand that um, there are uh, regions uh, in the country uh, which uh, whose livelihoods, whose entire livelihoods, uh, you know, depend on some of these uh, PSUs, right? So uh, we're mostly talking about states like Jharkhand, Chhattisgarh, Orissa, uh, you know, where there is uh you know uh, coal uh, i mean where where the livelihoods are drawn from the coal economy yes. and there are entire townships right i mean if you look at say a city like bilai if you look at uh, you know jamshedpur if you look at raurkela if you look at uh, you know most of these uh, townships uh, you know they rely on uh, the coal economy right and there are millions and millions of people whose livelihoods depend on this so you can't transition overnight as well, uh, you know, and, and it's not just that it's, uh, you know, also the fact that, you know, these PSUs don't just provide, uh, you know, uh, don't just mine coal or provide uh, coal or transport coal or uh, provide electricity uh, from coal. It's not just that. It's also that, uh, you know, they have uh, a lot of uh, you know social initiatives, right? I mean, they set up schools, they set up hospitals, they set up public infrastructure, all of these things, right? And um, it's, it's not good to... Uh, you know, um, sort of uh, demonize uh, these companies uh, just because, uh, you know, they're uh, involved in uh, fossil fuel uh, related activities, right? So uh, that is why this whole concept of just transition has come about, right? Which is uh, how do we transition the millions of people whose livelihoods currently depend on the coal economy in some way or the other towards, uh, you know, uh, environmentally benign livelihoods or like, I mean, ideally, uh, you know, the uh, clean energy uh, related uh, uh, livelihoods, right? Uh, But there are challenges uh, to do this, right? For one, if you see like, you know, uh, in India, for example, most of the solar and wind uh, power plants are coming up in the west of the country and in the southern part of the country, right? Not so much in the eastern part of the country. So most of the jobs are also getting generated in states like, uh, you know, Rajasthan, Maharashtra, Gujarat, Tamil Nadu, uh, Karnataka, etc. So what kind of uh, livelihoods do we then think about, uh, you know, if we have to transition, uh, you know, uh, the jobs of those who are dependent on the coal economy, right? So this is a very big policy challenge. And, uh, you know, uh, all all different, uh, you know, sectors or stakeholders uh, would have to work together, uh, you know, to ensure that the externalities uh, of this transition are minimized. Yeah. So Bharat, I think you laid a beautiful perspective as to why we, you know, 
can't de uh, demonize those fossil fuel industries for the sake of millions of people's lives that are dependent on the work that they do here you know in these companies it is also so true that we need to collectively join hands you know and move towards a inclusive transition which of course cannot just happen overnight right uh, this also you know brings me to my next question which is how are these industries uh, adapting and becoming more climate resilient yeah so uh, you know you have on the one hand of course uh, mitigation right which is climate stewardship uh, which is what uh, industries uh, or organizations governments etc are doing to reduce uh, ghg emissions right but on the other hand uh, there's the other angle of adaptation right so which is uh, you know no matter uh, what the pace of uh, ghg uh, emission reduction is uh, there is bound to be uh, an increase in the incidence of uh, extreme events and also the intensity of extreme weather events going forward uh, you know because of the uh, increasing concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere so uh, you know uh, what what uh, typically uh, you know uh, this would mean is that uh, you know even though you have very stringent climate policy uh, ghg emissions are not going to decrease but it will slow down so the increase will slow down it will mm -hmm. reach a peak and then thereafter if you continue uh, implementing these climate policies you can expect the ghg emissions to increase uh, to decrease right so but until then uh, you know as long as the ghg emissions increase you're going to have an increase in the incidence and the intensity of extreme weather events so um, organizations governments uh, you know societies across the board would have to start thinking about what would be the impacts of these extreme weather events on their operations on their way of life uh, on their uh, financials right so which is why it's very important to also look at adaptation and uh, when we talk about adaptation now uh, you know the important thing to note uh, is that uh, many of the regulations uh, which exist uh, you know especially in the developing countries but even in the developed countries uh, aren't adequate uh, in light of the evidence that we have uh, for the way in which uh, climate is changing right so for example uh, you know most cities uh, have a storm water drainage system uh, that correspond to a 100 year return period of uh, flooding right mm. so now the 100 year return period based on the past uh, climate data may correspond to a certain intensity of rainfall and uh, you know your stormwater systems and your other uh, city infrastructure may be geared towards that but uh, if emissions continue to rise uh, you would uh, find that a 100 year return period uh, stormwater uh, design is not going to be adequate uh, to reduce the impact of floods in cities or in infrastructure right so understanding uh, these uh, trends uh, and and you know uh, using the science of climate to inform what would be the uh, changes in the intensity and frequency of extreme weather events and based on that uh, you know risk assessment uh, taking suitable adaptation action right so which means prioritizing uh, you know what kind of project interventions uh, you would like to implement mm. and then actually going ahead and implementing these projects right so that's uh, what needs to be done, uh, you know, on the adaptation and resilience side, and especially for a country like India, uh, you know, which is a tropical country, which faces the brunt of, uh, you know, extreme weather events due to climate change, you know, uh, across uh, the spectrum, right? You have heat waves, 
Um, you know, you have uh, cyclones which are now increasingly coming up in the Arabian Sea. Yes. Earlier, it used to be only in the Bay of Bengal, but you know now uh, we're seeing more and more cyclones come up in the Arabian Sea, uh, including the recent one uh, that hit uh, uh, you know Gujarat and Maharashtra, Cyclone Tokte uh, in the month of May. You know, you have uh, sea level rise that both the west coast and the east east coast uh, would have to deal with. Uh, you know, you have uh, water scarcity that affects a large part of uh, interior India. Uh, you know, so all of these uh, risks are especially pronounced for a country like India, and therefore India would have to invest equally, if not more, uh, in adaptation and uh, resilience. Right. Uh, you know, so this means uh, at the industry level and also at the city government level, because uh, you know often uh, you know these are um, sort of uh, big projects, right? When you're looking at uh, you know stormwater drainage systems or when you're looking at a flood defense system, uh, this is not something that typically can be implemented by one. Uh, industry alone, uh, you know, so a lot of uh, initiatives would also have to be taken by the government, uh, you know, the municipal corporation and the city government to allocate the budget uh, to implement uh, these kind of projects. Mm. Yeah. Right. So uh, do we have like a timeline set by our country, you know, where we'll be reaching the uh, tip and then from there onwards, you know, we'll be sort of moving da- uh, down the slope? Mm. No, I mean, um, see, like, uh, again, uh, each country, uh, you know, what it can do is it can propose, uh, you know, GHG uh, mitigation, uh, you know, targets, policies, uh, and, uh, you know, for example, uh, propose certain targets for renewable energy, for electric mobility and things like that, right? But it's really, uh, you know, a a commons uh, kind of a problem, right? So, um, you know, each country would, uh, you know, want to do what is in its own uh, self-interest, right? So, which is uh, take up as much of the carbon space as possible, uh, you know, but uh, when we add up all of these, you know, commitments and actions, uh, you know, of all countries uh, together, uh, you know, we find that, uh, you know, the temperature rise is definitely going to be uh, more than the safe limit, right? So, when we say 2.7 to 3.6 uh, degree Celsius increase, uh, you know, by the end of the century compared to pre-industrial level, that is going to be, that is going to exceed uh, most of the tipping points anyway. So we have to get used to a new normal, uh, you know, in terms of uh, the number and the intensity of extreme weather events that we're going to see, uh, you know, but uh, the way we would do that is, uh, of course, uh, you know, incentivize climate action uh, domestically uh, and also uh, incentivize climate action internationally. Uh, have partnerships uh, with other countries, bilateral agreements, multilateral agreements, uh, you know, to promote uh, or or to, uh, you know, jointly develop uh, clean energy technologies, uh, financial uh, transfer that would enable uh, deploying these clean energy technologies, etc. And and so there is no timeline, uh, you know, to uh, uh, reduce uh, temperature rise, uh, you know, so much. It's just about, you know, uh, the GHG emissions, uh, you know, uh, which get reflected in the NDCs, uh, you know, which again uh, get updated from time to time, uh, you know, via the international negotiation process. You have uh, what's called a global stock take. Uh, you know, periodically they uh, take stock of the yeah. different countries' NDCs and, uh, you know, uh, assess whether they are adequate enough. Uh, in light of uh, the target that we want to reach, which is to limit temperature rise to 1.5 Celsius. Uh, but it is a difficult problem because uh, of the incentive structure, right? So it is going to be difficult to uh, get all countries to come on the same page and propose aggressive 
mitigation targets, uh, especially if it's going to be uh, prohibitively expensive to do so, uh, you know, for developing countries. So, which is why uh, I think climate leadership is very important, uh, you know, in business, uh, in mm. government, uh, you know, so that uh, the urgency uh, is reflected uh, in in these uh, actions. Yeah. Right. So, um, since you also talked about climate leadership, um, even you are, you know, building a startup to support industries with uh, climate risk analysis right so you know what motivated you to build this and what is your startup's aim overall right yeah so uh, we started up uh, earlier this year um, so we are an enterprise climate risk management uh, startup so uh, in fact uh, so i just got uh, in touch with uh, some of my ex-colleagues and friends and in fact the idea came from a couple of projects that i had done uh, in my previous stints uh, you know, one with the oil and gas sector and one with uh, the State Pollution Control Board of Odisha, uh, you know, where I was, uh, uh, you know, so yeah, so I, I closely witnessed, uh, you know, how uh, various extreme weather events impact, uh, you know, business operations uh, and impact, uh, you know, the livelihoods mm-hmm. of communities who are residing uh, in those areas, right? So, uh, you know, one was, of course, the Heat Island project that we had done in Odisha uh, for one of the cities in Odisha. Uh, it's a city called Jarsuguda. In the western part of Orissa, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, often temperatures uh, you know go up to 50 degrees and beyond in the summer months. And uh, you know, this is also like a coal mining and industrial belt of Orissa. So, uh, when the temperature exceeds uh, a certain level, like you know, typically in the late 40s or 50s, uh, you have a situation where uh, the coal uh, gets self oxidized, and uh, there is a very high possibility of the coal catching fire. And that would increase the ambient air temperature in the entire city. Uh, you know, so even if, uh, you know, the neighboring areas, uh, you know, have a temperature that's four or five degrees lower uh, in certain uh, areas, especially around industrial sites, uh, you know, uh, you have temperatures that touch like 53, 54 degrees Celsius, right? And this obviously uh, is, is not a healthy uh, thing, right? So this causes heat stress, this causes like, uh, you know, health related complications because of heat stress. So all of this is, uh, you know, uh, going to decrease the overall productivity of uh, the city as a whole, right? Uh, so this is one project which really opened my eye towards, uh, you know, climate impacts. Uh, the other project was uh, something that we had done with the oil and gas sector. So, uh, you know, the oil and gas uh, is one of the critical uh, infrastructure sectors. And uh, so we had done this project where uh, the PSU companies in India were interested in looking at uh, what kind of climate risks are likely to affect their operations and assets. Uh, so we had visited like, uh, you know, assets like uh, LNG terminals, uh, you know, uh, uh, gas pipelines, uh, refineries, all of these things, right? So uh, we also got an idea about how water scarcity, uh, floods, sea level rise are going to impact their operations uh, in the next, uh, say, few decades. Uh, so all of these, uh, you know, put together, uh, you know, uh, you know, created created the seed, uh, you know, for our startup. So we are called Climate V Ventures, uh, right. and uh, you know, we are a team of uh, scientists and engineers, uh, you know, in different cities actually in India and Canada. Uh, so we want to do something about this. So our idea is basically to develop a product that can help industries uh, measure uh, and manage uh, physical climate risk. For now, uh, there are other kinds of climate risks as well. There's uh, transition risk, you know, which is uh, you know, as clean energy uh, technology, uh, you know, increases uh, in terms of market share, uh, that would affect the uh, fossil fuel companies. You know, so for example, electric mobility, hydrogen mobility, all of these would impact the demand of diesel and gasoline going forward, right? So how are fossil fuel uh, companies going to deal with this? Uh, you know, are they going to 
you know, diversify into other uh, sources? Are they going to expand to other markets which still have the demand for uh, diesel and gasoline? So all of these are questions uh, that the oil and gas uh, and fossil fuel companies in general have to ask. Um, right. So, th- I mean, these set of risks are known as transition risks. Um, and the physical part of it is a sort of more relatable, which is, you know, as uh, the floods uh, increase yes. in instances hmm. and intensity as uh, heat waves uh, uh, increase. Uh, so how are they going to deal? How, what's the impact in terms of financials, in terms of the cost of loss and damage uh, to these companies? And, uh, you know, how can they... Uh, use this information to uh, reduce their uh, financial impact. So that's what uh, we are trying to build here. Right. So, you know, I feel that, you know, we are on a road to an incremental shift, right? And in this shift, we know uh, climate knowledge, mitigation, adaptation, and even inclusivity has a huge role to play, right? And to the context of our conversation, I also feel that renewable sources of energy have immense potential, not only in terms of reducing uh, the carbon dioxide emissions, but also, you know, making electricity in remote areas uh, uh, accessible at a must, much yep. lower cost. So, you know, to the young people or in fact, any sustainability enthusiast aspiring to be in this sector, what would your advi- advice be for, you know, to get them started and drive uh, Towards sure. their goal. Okay. Uh, you know, so um, what I would say is that um, India is growing. Uh, you know, there are a lot of opportunities that are coming up. And uh, our growth uh, would have to be on the sustainable path, right? So we can't grow like, uh, you know, how some of the developed countries uh, have grown, uh, you know, 50, 100 years back. So uh, in a sense, a lot of our development journey uh, will have to be fast-tracked and it would be, uh, fundamentally of a different nature, uh, you know, uh, we would have a leapfrog into uh, the sustainable development trajectory, right? Uh, so uh, in, in light of this, uh, you know, there's a whole spectrum of opportunities, whether in terms of, uh, you know, renewable energy, in terms of, uh, uh, you know, uh, mobility, in terms of energy access, uh, rural energy access, especially, uh, you know, in terms of, you uh, uh, you know, uh, modeling uh, in terms of uh, public policy analysis. Uh, you know, there's a whole wide range of options. Uh, and I would request uh, anyone starting this space uh, to just start with an open mind and uh, just dive into, uh, you know, whatever they feel uh, they're interested in to begin with, right? And, you know, there are many uh, consultancies, uh, think tanks, NGOs, uh, even corporates, right? Uh, uh, where uh, many such opportunities uh, are available. So uh, in turn, uh, in some of these places, uh, you know, try and get uh, an understanding of how things work at the ground level. You know, uh, sort of understanding reading reports is one thing, uh, you know, watching, uh, you know, content uh, on YouTube, etc. All of these, uh, you know, can be done, uh, you know, uh, to get started and to get better informed. But um, I think the real impact is had uh, at the ground level when you're actually implementing. So when you're seeing how the implementation process works. Uh, and I think many of these, uh, you know, think tanks, consultancies, uh, large corporations uh, offer that opportunity to be close to the point where uh, projects are getting implemented and to look at the dynamics uh, of implementation and take, uh, you know, uh, enrich yourself with that experience. And then after that, uh, you know, uh, either continue uh, or, uh, you know, go for higher studies. Uh, you might want to specialize in, uh, you know, one or two uh, narrow domains uh, after you've sort of uh, uh, 
looked at a broad spectrum of uh, you know different domains uh, and after that like you know uh, really let your interest drive you uh, you know rather than uh, you know forcing yourself into one or the other uh, kind of category uh, and the other thing about sustainability is that it's a very interdisciplinary topic right so um, you know for a single project uh, you would have to draw from so many different disciplines right so you might have uh, you know a science component you might have an engineering component you might have uh, you know a humanities component you know you need to understand what exactly is the problem that uh, you know a certain say community faces or a certain group of uh, stakeholders face uh, you know so being in touch with the human side is also very important uh, in this space uh, and of course, like there are many tools and techniques that you can always pick up, uh, you know, nowadays there are a lot of these, uh, you know, massive online open courses, uh, right? So the MOOCs, uh, you can pick up a lot of these skills uh, from these courses and, uh, you know, try and use them uh, in your projects, uh, you know, so <clears throat> Uh, that's that's what I would say. Uh, you know, for example, I also did not have any background in public policy. Uh, you know, like uh, I said earlier, uh, I graduated from IIT Kharagpur, and uh, it was only after about a year okay. and a half into my work life that uh, I decided it was time to at least uh, you know develop a formal uh, you know uh, sort of understanding of public policy, and that's why I enrolled with uh, the Takshashila Institute, uh, which offers this five-month crash course on uh, public policy. Uh, so that's that's where uh, you know my understanding of public policy also got solidified and then i was able to use uh, learnings from that course in future projects as well so there are a lot of these courses coming up uh, nowadays it wasn't there uh, even 5 or 10 years back but now things are changing right uh, you know now it's much more of uh, a plug and play model it's much more of a gig economy right so you decide what you want uh, to work on you decide right. what your interests are and there are resources uh, time a dozen to uh, you know help you uh, upskill and then uh, Im- implement uh, projects right so that's what uh, i would say So, you know, the greatest uh, sort of flex that I had when I started off in this industry is that, uh, like you just mentioned, right, it is such an interdisciplinary subject that you have to think from every aspect. And this is just so interesting that, you know, it makes your mind think, how is it related to economy? How is it related to the social angle? So, yes, thank you so much, Bharat for coming on board and you know getting our first podcast recorded it was lovely having you here thank you so much ayantika i thoroughly enjoyed it thank you so much for listening to this episode of sustainability under microscope to share your feedback about this episode or for any topic suggestion please reach out to me on linkedin or instagram the handles for both are mentioned in the description box or you can even email me on sustainabilityundermicroscope@gmail.com. If you like this episode and learned something today, please support my work by following this channel and turning the notification on so that every time a new episode is released, you are notified. Until next time, my dear listeners, adios.